Hello and welcome to Film Comet Magazine's new DVD podcast. This is Film Comet's digital editor, Violet Luca, welcoming you to the first episode of a podcast that will spotlight a DVD reviewed in our most recent issue. More than listening along, we encourage you to watch along, either for the first time or as a repeat viewing, and leave your thoughts on our blog. The first film in this series is Claude Lonsman's Shoah, which was released on DVD by the Criterion Collection on June 25th in a new 4K transfer. Shoah may seem daunting in terms of length and subject matter, but it is a rich and deeply involving movie. And it is a subject that you have to talk about to work through your thoughts and feelings. In our last issue, the critic Jay Hoberman wrote about Shoah, we brought together Hoberman and filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer, whose new film, The Act of Killing, is about the Indonesian genocide in the 1960s. He's also written on the subject of documentary and genocide. Their conversation touches upon the many issues raised by and weighs into Shoah. I began by asking them about how Lonsman's technique plays with linguistic and filmic tense. One of the radical things about Shoah was Lonsman's insistence on filming in the present, putting the movie in the present tense, having it be a film about things that people remembered, but never going back to documents, substitute for those memories. And there were a lot of implications for this. I mean, first of all, it, it made the movie much more of an existential experience for the people who were being interviewed, or who were recollecting past, but also for the um, for the viewer. I mean, you couldn't put these events behind you so comfortably that you weren't as distant from them. And it also more or less compelled him to do a lot of filming in real time. You know, uh, I remember when Shoah was first released, one of the complaints, or at least one of the comments was, was you know, why do you have to hear the witness or participant speaking in Polish or, or German or, or Yiddish or whatever, and then hear the translator translating that into French. And I think it was you know, part of the filmmaker emphasizing, let's say, the, the, the integrity of the present moment. It's a, it's a really important point about the film having a present. Every film has a now, and the now of Shoah is, of course, the now at the time that the people in Shoah are remembering the past. But I think the experience of watching a film is you enter, as a viewer, you join the now of a film. And so the now of the film is the time that it's made, and that becomes the present. So as Jay said, it's a film in the present tense. I think what that also does is that somehow makes the film fundamentally a film about that now. It's about how this traumatic past is alive in the present. It becomes, for me, about how these real-time moments of people remembering and working through layers of resistance to their memory become, for me, moments of how people struggle to make meaning of the unimaginable in the present and how the present is traumatized by the past, that it's literally, people literally become incoherent in the face of such a traumatic history. I, I think that also makes the film a profoundly backward-looking film in the sense that it's in a now, but unlike so many films about the aftermath of genocide, 
particularly the aftermath of genocide in the, in the global south, say, where we, I, I'm afraid, in our tradition, take, take atrocity less seriously, there's very often a kind of catharsis offered to the viewer in the sense that the film is forward-looking. There's, there's very often, in our human rights films, there's a sense of, okay, this awful thing happened, and now we will reassure the viewer that things, that there's truth and there's reconciliation and there's justice and we move on. But Shoah is a memorial not just for what happened, but for the destruction that continues to live in the present. It's a, it's a memorial for the fact that the people whose lives have been destroyed, who lost in the course of 20 minutes their entire family, everyone they knew, all their friends, that their lives are destroyed forever, or that destruction lives on forever. So for me, I was, as I was re-watching Shoah in preparation for this, I was thinking again and again of this very beautiful, one of my very favorite writings about history, Walter Benjamin writing in his thesis for a philosophy of history, of this clay painting of Angelus Novus, where he, he describes the angel of history as, with his wings outspread, looking backwards, and the past is this mountain of wreckage building up at, at his feet, kind of piling wreckage upon wreckage, catastrophe upon catastrophe, and the angel would like nothing more than to stop and wake in the dead and put whole what has been destroyed, but cannot because a wind is blowing from the past, propelling the angel into the future. And, and that, that wind, which prevents somehow redemption, is the myth of progress. So I think Shoah is a memorial to the way a traumatic past is alive in the present, and it would not be that way if the story was told through archives from another time. I'd be interested, of course, to have had Walter Benjamin take hey, on Shoah. <laughs> Shoah. I think that one of the uh, most amazing things about this movie is how it manages to engage so many issues, so many, so many core issues about one's understanding of history, personal history, and the nature of the past, and also the nature of motion pictures and motion picture recording. Considering that when Monson set out to make the film, as I understand it, he didn't really have a clear sense of the structure or what he was going to be doing. I mean, his impulse was to record these stories before this was lost and to make what uh, he called, quoting another philosopher, the um, presence of an absence. And, I mean, that's one way to describe what movies are in general. And I think that over the 10 years or however long it was that he, that he worked on this, he had to confront all of these issues and was was confronting them in a very pragmatic way because they were it was coming out of the material itself it wasn't wasn't being imposed on him so he created something that's that really is certainly not like any previous documentary there's some uh, analogies uh, now including your film as certain points of contact with uh, with Shaw I think it's also interesting this issue of his method and that I think you come across situations where it exerts a hold on you. It lays a claim to you, and you have to, so you become indebted to that claim. I, I was just thinking as you talked about how he had no, no real plan, no real structure, and felt he had to record these stories before they were lost in the world. But I very much had that same feeling as I met perpetrators in Indonesia talking about how people were killed, and I knew nobody had ever documented this at all. Nobody had ever filmed them. 
Nobody had ever recorded these stories in any form, and they were getting old. And when they died, the details of how hundreds of thousands of people were killed would be lost. And you work in that debt, if you like, to the past. I think you, you inevitably somehow make a film which is a monument to what's lost. I was sort of thinking about what you said earlier about the fact that we wait for translation, because as I watched the film, the real-time translation also gives us time to think and to imagine and to put ourselves in those places. So I was thinking that when you talked about, when you asked the question about silence. If, you, if you've seen the, the, the book that's based on, uh, shall it's less than 200 pages. Mm. I mean, for a nine-and-a-half-hour movie, there's, there's actually very little or relatively little uh, dialogue. There's a lot of a lot of silence, and the the repetition it gives it you time to think about it, uh, to to picture it sometimes, and also to to study the response of the people on the screen and their gestures. I mean, there's so much that that communicated in this movie that's not uh, verbal. And I think he also used hold back words in a way that's very, you know, there's this, the film more or less opens, doesn't it, with this prisoner who is, as a boy, singing songs for, yeah. right, uh, in Treblinka on, on a river bar, on a riverboat. Not, not Treblinka, but Helmno. He's at Helmno, right, yeah, right, yeah. right, right. And, and what's amazing to me is somehow he comes back several times every time we go back to Helmuk and he's set up almost as a romantic figure in my mind because he doesn't really have any words and uh, Lansman doesn't really give him any words and I, I project all these things that he's smiling and I'm projecting onto him all these I imagine a sensitive soul I imagine a kind of romantic figure who's sort of surviving in this beautiful way by singing but finally when he speaks the devastating reality that he says he feels nothing when he felt nothing when he saw what was happening at Helmo and what he was asked to do as part of the Soviet commando, that he was totally numb already from his experience in the ghetto, that the ghetto had prepared the Jews for their work as sort of part of the special, the Sonder commando who were, were factory workers in this factory of death. It was totally devastating to me. And I hadn't realized that we hadn't heard him say virtually anything until that point, and all, my whole sense of him as a character was <clears throat> pure projection. And when I see this, sh when he finally speaks three hours into the film, and he's like a shell of a human being, destroyed by everything he's lived through in the Lot's ghetto, uh, it's just this devastating, I don't know, this devastating moment that shows how powerful it is when you hold back words, when you, when you allow the viewer to create a story and then in one fell swoop totally undermine it. Yeah, well, I think it also points out how how enigmatic the uh, the Jewish survivors are in mm. the movie. I mean, it's much easier to understand the Nazis who were there and, to a degree, the Polish witnesses who remember things. But this guy, he was 12 years old or something. He was quite young. Yeah. And there's that scene where the, the villagers come to see him in front of the church. That's right, and they kind of remember him. Anyway, I just remember it's so haunting that when he's surrounded by these elderly vi villagers who are not in the least bit hostile. I mean, they're 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 you know they're sort of interested to see him and, and possibly even glad, although they're saying fairly outrageous things. And he's just standing there in this crowd with this strange smile, with this smile. Yes, and you know that smile is something that that 
recurs in um, uh, among other survivors. I had a uh, a friend who a, a Hungarian film theorist who was herself a child survivor of the Holocaust. I think that her father or her parents threw her off the train to Auschwitz. And, you know, the same thing that I think that's basically how Roman Polanski survived also, and that she was able to wander around in the countryside till the end of the war. So, and she was fascinated by this by this smile, which she she was that which she saw in these different survivors, and it's it's unreadable. I mean, why are they? I mean, it's definitely if you look for it, you see it there, and it's certainly not a happy smile. But what is it? What does it mean? I mean, it's and I feel that that the movie is full of things like that. Actually, when he's in front of the church in Kremlin, they're, they're all nice to him. But yeah. then they start they start actually saying pretty anti-Semitic things. Outrageous. Outrageous. And he's just, you don't know whether he's, it's a totally, it's like yeah. a survivor's smile. It's a survivor, yeah. you know, it's a smile of survival, just as yeah. the singing was. It's a reenactment yeah. of reactivating and, that. Yeah. And of course, Lanzmann has brought him back. I, I assume that he was living in Israel, and, and Lanzmann yeah, I think brought, said that. Yeah, brought him back to Poland, where he may not have been for close to uh, uh, forty years, and threw him into in, into this into this village scene. So, I, I think that the onrush of memory for him must have just been uh, overwhelming. Uh, who can know what this guy was thinking then? One of the interesting techniques Lazman uses, which actually irritated me at first, but then started fascinating me, and in the end I thought it was indispensable somehow, is that he asks these questions that are in our mind, as though to underscore them, mm-hmm. but which the character can never answer. You know, it, it show, Eventually you realize, okay, Lazman's not seeking an answer, he's just underscoring a question. So he asks one person, you survived, but are you really alive? <laughs> and he asks, I think it's the guy is living in New York, if I'm not mistaken. And he says, uh, why do you smile all the time? Yeah, that's right. He actually asked the that's question. Right. Yeah, yeah. The guy who was in the resistance in Auschwitz. Was that Verba? I think that's Verba. Verba, right? Isn't Verba, it? I think who he, has, has a very pronounced, I mean, he he's really smiling. Yeah, and he has a whole, I mean, he has a whole performance that I think protects yeah. himself emotionally from the horror that he's yeah. talking about, which is a kind of you know, angry, sarcastic, but... It's a very different smile. Very, very different, and uh, yeah, I think that all of these survivors are different. But what they have in common is, you know, what's what's conveniently called survivor guilt, but which is, you know, is, is a, an emotion that's that's uh, that's very complex. I mean, I think that Berber, it's true, his, his he's caustic. He's yeah. you know, he's, it's an angry smile, and I'm always. Struck by the the man who was the leader in the uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, who was actually interviewed in Israel, and he's clearly a friend of uh, Lanzmann. He's talking about his bitterness, and he says, um, "If you licked my heart, it would poison you." Mm-hmm. Or something. <laughs> so these people are—it's almost like the like the memories remember them. Do you know what I mean? Yes, exactly, and, exactly. And, and, you know, Watson was quiet. I and mean, this is another thing that was said when the film first came out, was he was, he was perceived as, as being rough to the point of being brutal in, in asking questions. And nobody really cared if he was giving the uh, the, the Nazis a hard time. I mean, people you know, enjoyed that, certainly. But 
we're asking the question like, what up, are, you, are, you, are you really alive? Are you living or compelling uh, the barber? Yeah, to keep going. To, to keep going, you know, to cut him, to, you know, to use this, you know, this it's extra, an extreme form of, of uh, method direction, right? I mean, trying to get the sense of memory of this. I mean, people yeah. were, were, were genuinely shocked. He felt like a moral obligation, I think, to do this. He, he says that. He says, it's, we have to continue. We yeah. must do this. And it's a we. It's a ritual. He's going together, yeah. going through with his subjects. I, 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 I relate to that at some yeah. point. In my work with Anwar and the act of killing, it became this thing we were going through together that was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, well, I, they thank you. <laughs> they speak to you about that. Yeah. I think... I think one thing that troubles me a lot, coming from a family of survivors—not survivors—a lot of people died, but my family, I don't, they weren't survivors; they escaped. You know, mm-hmm. They left around Christmas. They got out. But, mm-hmm. but I guess these two things go together. First of all, of course, you have a movie that's nine hours long, and it's sort of talked about in the Holocaust movie. But actually, what I think is really important is that it doesn't have this magisterial kind of command of the events as a whole at all. Mm-hmm. It's actually, for me, it's a snapshot. Yes, it also gives us a huge, we can interpolate from that a huge pattern, a much bigger picture, but it, you have this sense of very, very singular moment, and he, I think Lansman, except perhaps with the sections of uh, Raoul Wilberg, he generalizes, and I think that prevents the film for the most part from ever becoming sentimental, and that's very important, but... Uh-huh. Part of this picture that's very singular, but that he doesn't summarize, is that the difference between the perpetrators and the victims was somehow blurred for me. In that hour after hour, eventually it really, it was almost unbearable, it was unbearable for me that everybody's working in this sort of factory of death. And it's not to say that no one's responsible, but blame somehow doesn't lie within the frame of the movie. It's not a film about to blame and who's not to blame and why did they do it? It's about the kind of it's about how this machine worked and how that horror is alive still is for everyone involved. And even this this SS officer from now I'm sure it was Triplinka who says how they all cried when they first saw the bodies fall out like potatoes, I think he said. Uh, and every day a hundred Jews were chosen to drag the corpses and kill at night and so forth. Somehow that you are deprived scientifically, precisely of any clear place to empathize. I mean, it's not to say that you, of course you sympathize with the survivors, you know, devastating things that people see, you know, on the right, right at the entrance of the gas chamber, you meet a relative or a friend, whatever, it's horrible. But at the same time, you're, it's a system that's being prevented. And it's not about who's responsible, you're denied the catharsis which comes with condemnation. The whole thing is condemned very tough to me. Well, there's, there, there, there's, there's, there's so much to be said about that because uh, one of the things that uh, Lanzmann did, I, and I think without necessarily theorizing it, was he, something that we see much more of now, is he created what was essentially an experiential movie. You know, you don't, it's not a narrative, you're just there with it. You live through, you live through Shoah. And, I mean, some of it is deliberate. I mean, uh, you know, the duration certainly has to do with that, you know, duration of the movie, duration of the shots, and so on, that it's something that you um, go through in the act of killing when they're um, 
shooting one of the production numbers, and one of the victims gets, oh, thank you for, for killing me and sending me to heaven. When this is clearly, you know, like a kind of crazy projection, guilty projection on the part of the perpetrators. But you see the same thing happening with these elderly Nazis in Shah. I mean, the guy who is the uh, assistant commandant or the undercommandant at, mm. at Treblinka is talking about, you know, what yes, he calls, right, he calls it like a literal efficient assembly line of death. And it's like something that the Germans and the Jews did together. <laughs> they collaborated yeah. on killing the Jews. And I think that can only be the perpetrator's point of view. I don't think that that was the point of view of the Jews, even the Sonder commander, who were sort of, you know, put into the machine and, you know, were, were using their own survival instincts or who knows what. To, well, they're uh, struggling all the time to yeah. find ways of stopping the machine from going. That's yeah. why there's a whole section on the attempt to... to, to yeah. have a rebellion in the Czech family. But, but that is an amazing aspect of human nature that the Germans would want to see this as a kind of collaborative effort. And also that somehow that contributing uh, to the, the, the what was he, the, he had, in my copy had just a German under commander yeah. from Treblinka. He, he, he on the one hand is talking about how sick it made him and so forth but he puts the whole thing it's like he enjoys putting the whole thing into kind of a mythical picture. He's the guy who talks about watching the bodies fall out like potatoes and crying and feeling sick. Uh -huh. But at the same time, it's like I was on a panel recently was talking about this man. And the panelist was, from, was a historian. He was saying how this guy is, is sort of unburdening himself. But I don't see him as unburdening himself. There's a kind of performative, boasting, mythical kind of, it's like he's packaging Yep. Everything, the pain, the suffering, the glory, the efficiency, all in one kind of totally coherent and efficient wrapper that allows him to live with it. And happily, it's a little bit like in the act of killing the way Adi comes into the film from Jakarta and mm -hmm. says so provocatively and, and shockingly to me at first, oh, this was all wrong, all the propaganda's a lie. And in fact, you, like, you gradually come to realize, or I gradually came to realize, that he was enjoying feeling like a moral human being. Yeah. He was enjoying the feeling of condemning what he's done. But he's yeah. not necessarily feeling remorse. And the yeah. same with this. And you know, that's Himmler's point of view, his famous statement, you know, that this is like this terrible burden that they had accepted and no yeah. one would ever know how difficult right. it was, you know. And so, you know, it's funny, I recently reread Eichmann in Jerusalem because I was writing about uh, Hannah Arendt. And I was struck by how pervasive that attitude, that that was also the... Uh, yeah. Hey, Hannah Arendt talked about, uh, I, I think she talks about Eichmann admiring the way Himmler would use these winged words. Oh, words yes. Wings. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I think I have the quote, to have stuck it out, to have remained yes. decent, that is yes. what made us hard. This yes. is a page of glory in our history which has never been written and is never to be written. Yeah, I mean, just... And that's maybe what, in a sense, that's the circuit that show us short, right? It's yeah. never to be written. That's right. Can we sort of return to the idea of the length and thinking about it now in an age when people will watch 
nine episodes of Breaking Bad in a day. And thinking about that versus such a runtime back when show was first released. How was it watched? Was it watched with breaks over one day? No, two two parts. It was it was shown over, uh, I think, over two days. I'm pretty sure that's how it was shown in New York. And then when it was at the Berlin Film Festival, where I also saw uh, parts of it the following year, I, they might have shown it twice in a day, but there definitely was a. Um, I mean, they might have shown both parts. Uh, on a single day, but there, there were there were definitely some hours in between. Yeah, I could only I, I of course watched it on DVD, and I yeah. tried to sort of sit down and watch it all in one go, but I simply couldn't. I was too. I, there were times where I just crying, a mess, forced myself to keep going, falling apart, and yeah. forced myself to keep going, and then threw in the towel, and then came back the next day. And I probably could watch. Two and a half hours. But, you know, to, to answer your question, Violet, I mean, it's very different, you know, to to look at, uh, you know, a whole season's worth of episodes and to sit in a movie theater and have this, this thing rolling on and on and on. I mean, there's a sense in which Shoah is an entity that's indifferent to the audience. Just as, just as you, I think, beautifully said earlier, that the memories are indifferent to the human beings that remember them. Yeah. You know, that, that, that it's like the memories are remembering the characters. Yeah, yeah. But the past is remembering the characters rather than the characters remembering the past. I mean, I had this fantasy when... Uh, it was fascinating to be in Berlin when the movie was shown, especially because you can imagine in a film festival to have a nine-hour movie is to, re- to wreak havoc with everybody's schedule. If they're going to watch it, and I believe that that was the first time it was shown in Germany in the, the mid '80s, so the wall was still there, and it was no memorial yet. I mean, there were some some plaques and stuff, but no no real uh, museum or, or memorial. That they should just create someplace uh, a, a little bunker in the uh, in the no man's land between you know between the two walls, east and west, and just have the movie showing there all the time, whether people came to watch it or not. Talk about a film indifferent to the audience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that now you know there's a question of what it, what does it mean that it's on it's on DVD. I don't I don't know. It certainly makes it, it makes it easier to uh, to take in, but less powerful. I think. I think clearly also the I mean just very simply by the duration somehow allows the enormity of the crime to sink in in this way where it becomes much bigger than any dramaturgy because you can't remember. I don't think the I don't think human being can, uh, you know, when you have epi- epi- a season of TV, each episode has its has its dramaturgy, and the whole has a kind of narrative. But here, I think you know you have a structure of the whole that I think, from my analysis, kind of, um, kind of, is an analysis of the structure of the Holocaust. You have a sort of prologue, then you have the emptied out cities, then you have the approach to the death camps. You have the neighbors. I think it's fantastic that he approaches Auschwitz for the first time through the, the town of Auschwitz, not through the camp. And the past is sort of activated in this amazing way there, too, where he uses tracks into Birkenau as a camera track. That was really breathtaking to me, that he uses the train track into Birkenau. Yeah. I think to track, uh, the 
track for his for Dolly. And then we arrive in the camps and then survival. It is like approaching this from an outsider and then entering it and then trying to live through. And that's not a dramaturgy, that's a, that's a Holocaust. And the duration allows that to sink in somehow. And yet it still felt like the tip of an iceberg to me, even after nine hours. Like, okay, I know a little bit about these three camps, death camps, and a little bit about the Warsaw Ghetto. And the horrible ending where you think, oh my gosh, there is only a little bit to be known because they killed everybody. And basically no one knows what happened. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing on, I mean, how many uh, millions of people were killed in the Ukraine? And, and none of that is in show because nobody ever, there are no survivors from that. I don't know if you try to uh, interview some of the BFS, um, but they're not in the film. I mean, it did occur to me that if the Nazis had won the war, they could have been making musical comedies themselves about their experience. Yeah, well, that, that is, I mean, when I, was in, when I was in Berlin, the reaction to the act of killing was very, very positive, but there was one historian who, what I was in a debate with on the radio, who said, this is like making a you know, musical comedy with, this is like asking SS officers to dramatize what they've done. And I said, my answer was very straightforward. It said, no, if the, if we were still standing in the third, if we were now having this, if this were still the third Reich. That's right, exactly. And I came in, and the Holocaust was something that had been basically just as that wonderful, horrible quote by Himmler that we just talked about. It intimated something that was sort of officially denied, but that the, that the low rate, that the, that the SS officers and people, SS commandants from the different camps were getting old and allowed to boast about what they'd done, were allowed to boast about what they'd done as a way of maintaining their prestige and their power. And then Germany had rebuilt good business relations with all the countries it had failed to conquer. And then somebody comes in and makes the so finds some aging SS officers who were fairly powerful at the time and are still sort of seen as heroes and with them dramatizes what they've done as a way of exposing both what happened to some extent, but also the, the nature of a regime built on that. That's what, that's what I tried to do. Yeah, no, that, that certainly comes through. I mean, isn't that's also how Eichmann got caught, because he couldn't stop bragging? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> he, wanted, he wanted to be recognized. Yeah. Even after losing. Yeah, even after losing. Even after losing. I mean, yeah. What, one last thing about Tyler, so this last, I think I just had noted this down, the last line in the film. I was the last two, of, two alive. I felt a kind of peace. I would wait until dawn for the Germans. And it's like we, we don't need to know even how he survived because somehow this terrible detail becomes a metaphor for the whole, for what it means to actually exterminate everybody. And in that sense, the film's lacuna and are so necessary because when extermination leaves so much so much unknowable. Even after he says that, then the last shot isn't it of the train? It's the train. One more train? So, it, you know, and it's an extremely long train. Yeah, right? yeah. And it cuts, it never clears the frame. I think the, the yeah. I'm afraid the different edits of this film are the different versions are different because they have dramatically different lengths. I think that, you know, in a way, all the Jews in the movie, or, or, or all the Jews who aren't in the movie, also have that experience somehow being the last Jew. And you never know how they survive, right? And, right, you never know how they survive. I mean, I remember when I, when I interviewed him uh, 
some years ago, I pressed him about how um, somebody survived. One of them survived, and he and he told me, and it was some. I mean, this, the way that people survived, it, it's always so so. These stories are so incredible, and you know, haphazard. I mean, an amazing confluence of events always that that enables this to happen. That that would become the subject of the movie. That's right. You, it would become an adventure. That's actually. right. It, 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 yeah, I mean. Um, that, that's something that also that made show unique is it never gave the audience that satisfaction of being able to identify with a winner. Yeah, and, and you never depart from the whole to the individual narrative. Even with Verba's story, you know, which is it's very much focused on the extermination of the family camp. Yeah. And the climax of that is that the Jews from Czechoslovakia singing the Hatikva in the gas chamber before they all die. There was something that I wanted to mentioned that Blondsman said to me I don't know whether he I'm, I'm sure he said this elsewhere too but uh, talking about Simon uh, Shrebnik when he brought him back he said that um, what he said to me was he was terrorized as a child and he's terrorized still as, as an adult but that the, the um, putting him back in that situation was crucial because it was and then he quoted Spinoza and I quote that I've never been able to like to track down it's like at that moment when you see him back in in uh, in, in Poland in, in his village the truth becomes true and mm-hmm. I thought that that's you know what he was trying to get at throughout the whole movie you know these kind of instances of authenticity when 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 you just you, you can feel on some in some way what happened I haven't much to add just that I think the forgetting of the Holocaust is somehow the long tail of the Holocaust. You know, it's it continuation. It's the afterburn, the horrible afterburn is that these things happen and then ultimately are eventually doomed to be forgotten. Lanson was motivated by trying to resist that, even if inevitably it's futile. Somehow, I think that the, the, one of the real lessons of Shoah is this thing that I mentioned earlier, the way that it's a film that's looking backward. And a film that's struggling to remember and to reactivate the past by, by capturing a present in which the past is alive, where the, where, the, it, where the true becomes true, as you said. And somehow, for me, it's, it's a pity that so few of our films about atrocity and human rights do that and instead try to look to a brighter future. And I say that with utter contempt. Yeah, there's no solace to be found in, in Shoah. Really. No, and even if even if there's trials and tribunals, it doesn't make it any better for the people who lost. And more horrible still, that Shoah is nine hours long, and it's the tip of an iceberg. And if it were a thousand hours long, it would still be the tip of an iceberg because yeah. everything has been lost. Nothing is known.